Mike is about to come read for us, you'll also find it printed inside your bulletin, John 1, 35 to 51. I want to call your attention to the three parenthetical statements that are made. What John is doing here is he's taking words that are, that are, um, have Hebrew meanings, and then he is going to, um, he's going to tell us what it means in Greek, which was the common language of his day, much like English is the common language of our day throughout the world. So was Greek in that period. It was called Koine Greek, meaning common Greek, uh, or the Greek of the common era. John does this so that the non-Jewish readers reading his gospel can relate to the story. And in that way, I think he also has all of us who are readers, he pulls us into the story and makes us become part of it. As he introduces the four earliest followers of Jesus, I want to suggest that you listen to how they're presented, how they're described. Um, first will be Andrew, and then his brother, Simon, who we know as Peter, and then, um, and then Philip, and then Nathaniel. And ask yourself, which of these four do I most identify with? And as I speak later, I'm going to amplify a little bit more than what this text provides to get a picture of who they are for us each to see if which one of them we're most like. For now, let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, <clears throat> and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come and see. They came and saw where Jesus was staying and remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was born from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found him about whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, 
Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. At St. James uh, Church on Montgomery Street, there is a marquee, a signboard, and they often will have a message on that signboard. And it's changed since I first wanted to use the message. So if you drive by there and go, well, that's not the message. It was the past few weeks, and the message read this way. Two lines. First line, search for Jesus. Second line, he is the light of our world. And my first impulse was to want to change the sign. And I would have had it read, Jesus is the light of the world. He's searching for you. I think that's far more compelling. Besides, I think it also reflects the irony of the first part of this story. John presents the first followers of Jesus as if they are expecting the arrival of God's Messiah. And they think they have found him in the person of Jesus. And so they're quick to tell others about it. In actuality, Jesus is the one who does the finding and the choosing. Yes, Andrew and Peter indeed come to Jesus, but it's Jesus who invites them and calls them to be with him, to be in companionship with him and to follow him. And later in John's gospel, he'll make it even more clear in chapter 15, 16, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you did not choose me, I chose you. I want to look at this narrative, first at its general storyline, to understand the thrust of what John wants to convey here. But then later, I'd like to go back and reflect on each of the four disciples who put their faith in Jesus as an example for us. First, the storyline. Two disciples of Jesus, of John the Baptist, pardon me, are standing with him when they see Jesus pass by, and John simply declares the Lamb of God, which is sort of equivalent to saying God's Messiah, God's anointed one. They immediately leave John and, and start to follow Jesus. And when Jesus is aware that, that they've come up to him, he turns and asks them what they're up to. And they say, where are you staying? And then Jesus simply replies, come and see. This come and see is a perfect summary description of Jesus' public ministry in John's gospel and how people respond either in faith or a lack of faith. <coughs> Pardon me. I love the word come and the fact that how Jesus uses it. I've often described to you and. In the Western world, we, when we say come, we exert this kind of motion, right? But in the Eastern world, they do it like this, come, come. It's this gathering in. It's, um, it's a compelling sort of invitation that represents Jesus saying, come, come see God's work in and through me. And then the sea represents one of John's many ways of describing how people registered faith in Jesus. They see the true identity of who Jesus is. They begin to see um, 
how the evidence and the testimony of confirms what Jesus says and the weight and significance of that for their own lives, the truthfulness of his words, the origination of having come from God, and then finally, the hope of the promise of life eternal. Behind Jesus' first question in John's gospel, this question of what, did it, what are you looking for? or other translations, what are you seeking, what are you searching, is that kind of question that lies at the root of each and every one of us. We all at some point in our lives must ask that question. What is our sense of purpose, our sense of destiny? What might we be looking for? And that either that question will either bring us to God or it doesn't. And for those for whom it doesn't, then we have to find some other way of of orienting our meaning and our purpose on our own. The faith of these first disciples is demonstrated in two ways. First, they address Jesus as rabbi, teacher. They basically are saying, we are going to submit ourselves uh, or subject ourselves to your teaching, to your instruction, to your guidance. We believe you have the words of eternal life. We believe you are the one who can orient us toward life and God's rule, God's kingdom. And then secondly, to follow Jesus is simply to embark on a journey with him. But then when he talks about staying or remaining with Jesus, he seems to imply this represents someone who has um, put themselves in a relationship with Jesus, a personal relationship, a bond as it were, that says, I'm committing myself to you from this point forward. And that's how these disciples respond to Jesus. This unfolding story develops along two tracks. Um, and, the, and the pattern is, is almost identical through both of them. The first track, Andrew, is convinced of Jesus' identity. And the first thing he does as a follower is to search for and find his brother Peter. Well, in this case, he, it's Simon, in order to bring him to Jesus. And then as Simon approaches Jesus, Jesus speaks to him and says this, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock. And so John tells us that name in, in Greek would be Petras or Peter. And that's how we know him. Now, on a similar track, uh, Jesus um, leaves Bethany beyond the Jordan where he has been and goes to Galilee. And there he finds Philip and says to Philip, follow me. And again, Philip gets up and goes and finds his friend Nathaniel to tell him we have found the Messiah. And as Nathanael approaches Jesus, Jesus speaks to him and says this, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Well, if Jesus said that to you, I think you would probably have Nathanael's response, which is, What? How do you know me? How can you say that about me? I love it that you said that about me, but have we met? And Jesus says, even before Philip came to you, I saw you under that fig tree. And so this 
response causes Nathanael to declare with affirmation, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Everyone's kind of startled by all the statements being made in these affirmations in just split seconds. But it's what happens next that has the most weight and most significance. Jesus says to Nathanael and to all the others there, because the you that he says is not just meant for Nathanael only, it's plural. He says, you will see heaven opened with the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, which is his own self-designation, a title that has divine implications. So what seems like an enigmatic statement, we kind of hear that and go, what is that supposed to mean? In actuality, it's loaded with meaning when you overlay this exchange between Jesus and Nathanael with the story of Jacob, who is associated with having a dream of a ladder. So all of this has that connotation. So anyone who knows that story is immediately going to hear Jesus' words within this context. If you recall, Jacob was notorious for his deceit and his trickery of his brother Esau. It happened multiple times, but the last time was when it came time for Isaac, his father, to pass on the blessing, which always went to the firstborn, so it would have gone to Esau. He's called Esau to himself, but Esau's out hunting. And so Jacob, along with his mother, decide, ah, we'll dress you up to be like Esau, and you'll get the blessing instead. And so they put on some, some fur on his arms so that uh, Isaac was, was blind at this point, and so he feels the hairy arms that he thinks is Esau. He eats the food that, um, that he thinks Esau has prepared, and now he blesses his son and promises all the good that God has promised him, he passes on to who he thinks is Esau. But in fact, it's this deceiving Jacob who receives the blessing. Well, when Esau finds out, he's not happy. He, he's, he's really not, he's angry at his brother. And his brother, Jacob, thinks he's going to take vengeance on him, so he flees. And in his way out of town, out of, out of Israel, he, he stops off and weary, he falls asleep and has a dream. And during this dream, he dreams of a ladder that connects heaven and earth and angels ascending and descending from the ladder. And when he wakes up, he associates the significance of the ladder with the fact that God is with him in that place. And so he thinks this is a remarkable place, and he, he sets up an altar and dedicates it to God and calls it Bethel, which means God's house. There he was met by God, and God was with him. And so he leaves in fear, but he also has an assurance that God is with him. And so from this point forward, then Bethel becomes a place, a sacred place, a sanctuary where Israel, early in its history, would worship God. Well, you can see the parallels. Jesus says to Nathanael, here's someone in whose there's no deceit. Whereas Jacob is known to be deceitful. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Jesus says of Nathanael, you are a true Israelite. 
You are the one God can use. Whereas Jacob was, um, well, Israel was always remained a challenge for God to use. <laughs> and this latter now has a significance of signaling the fact that God, that heaven and earth are connected through God's presence. And Jesus is going to speak to that and amplify that. In fact, the image of the tabernacle, which is where it was the meeting place of God and his people uh, during the wilderness wanderings, and then later the temple uh, gets built as the permanent site of, of, of God's house and God's place of meeting with the people. John has already signaled this in the prologue when he said um, that the word became flesh and lived among us. I think one translation says dwelt among us. The literal translation would be tabernacled among us or pitched his tent among us. In other words, that God has come to be with us so that the essence of all of this narrative and these two storylines leads us to this point. To be up close and personal with Jesus is to be present with God. When you are with Jesus, it is as though you are in God's house with God present there with us. That is the touch point of, of what Jesus is doing in, in people coming to faith, in people coming to know Jesus in person. Listen how scholar Tom Wright paraphrases Jesus' words in this verse 51. He says, don't think that all you will see is one or two remarkable acts of insight, such as you witnessed when I showed you that I knew about you before you even appeared. What you'll see from now on is the reality toward which Jacob's ladder, even the temple itself, was pointing like a signpost. If you follow me, you'll be watching to see what it looks like when heaven and earth are open to each other. You won't necessarily see the angels themselves, but you'll see things happening which show that they're all right there. Well, that's the thrust of the storyline. Now I want to look at each of these particular disciples and what it meant for them to have faith in Jesus and to become his followers. You know, we're a, we're a pastoral team that doesn't do a lot of confrontation of people directly in their sermons. We don't, we don't zero in on any one of you as if this part is just meant for you. But one particular preacher did that one day in a church and signaled, singled out this one man and said, Sir, are you a soldier in the Lord's army? He was trying to stir him up to be more of a witness. And, and the guy kind of looks around like, are you looking at me? And he goes, sir, I'm talking to you. Are you a soldier in the Lord's army? And finally the guy says, yes, I am. And then the pastor persisted and said, then why do we see you so infrequently here on Sundays? Yeah. To which the man quickly replied, sir, would you believe I'm in the secret service? Kent gave me that one, by the way. Uh, I thought about this time in the service you could use something like that. Let's look at Andrew. It may have been John's testimony that led Andrew to Jesus, but his choosing to stay with Jesus for the afternoon, for that day, 
convinced him that, of Jesus' true identity. And once he knew that, he searched for and found. Do you see how much repetition there is in this verb to find in this whole passage? He searched for and finds his brother to bring him to Jesus. That's all we get of Andrew at this point, but he's going to appear a few more times in John's gospel. And one of those times is uh, when Jesus sees the large crowd of some 5,000 people with him in a remote area, and he expresses concern for them that there's no place for them to get food. It's Andrew, and you got to love this about him. It's Andrew who brings a boy with four loaves, five loaves, you got to get the story right, five loaves and two fish. And he says, I don't know how this can feed this many people, but he brings him to Jesus because he knows Jesus can do something with him, with that. That's something about the nature of Andrew's faith, that he sees the capacity for Jesus to act. And in that way, for John, Andrew is a model of faith. Simon we know lots about from other Gospels, but in John's Gospel, he doesn't have this prominent role of leadership. He only appears a few times in Jesus' public ministry and then a little more concentrated later in the second half of the Gospel. And you, the, the impression you get of Peter in John's Gospel is that he's impulsive, uh, which we know him to be, and he's more likely to act and speak before he thinks. I don't know if that describes any of you, but that's Peter in relationship to Jesus. And, but yet Jesus says to him, I'm changing your name from Simon to Peter, which in actuality, Jesus is saying, you're about to experience a change of allegiance. You're no longer going to live for yourselves. I ch for yourself, I'm choosing you to, for a purpose, and I intend to use you for that purpose. That's why the name change. And then we are introduced to Philip. Philip is only mentioned in the other Gospels in association with the Twelve. But in John's Gospel, he has a prominent place throughout the story of John's Gospel. Um, he also is present when the 5,000 are being fed. And it's to Philip that Jesus turns and says, uh, where are we going to find enough bread to feed all of these people? And you've got to love Philip because he doesn't, he, he, and, and it says, John says at that point, Jesus did this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. But Philip immediately goes to the pragmatic and the practical, and he's just honest with Jesus. And he goes, bread, where are we going to get the money? It would take six months, sour, six months wages to buy enough bread to feed these people, and it would just be a little bit. That's Philip. He's just willing to say it like it is. There's another instance where um, when they come to Jerusalem another time for the Passover. In fact, it's the one time where we call it the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for the last time. Um, it's during that entry that we're told by John that there were also some Greeks who came to worship. Some God-fearers. They want to see Jesus. Do you know who they go to? They don't go to Peter. They don't go to James. They don't go to John. They go to Philip. What is it about Philip 
they see him in connection with Jesus. And so they ask Philip, sir, we would see Jesus. And then finally in John 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and, and they're, they're worried, they're anxious about his imminent departure. They don't quite understand what's about to happen. So Jesus says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. It's Philip who speaks up at that point. And he says, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Whoops. Uh, from Jesus' response, that was the wrong thing to say. Because Jesus, with some exasperation, says, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. you got to love Philip because he at least said what he thought. He was out there. And because he said what he thought, we get a better glimpse, a better understanding of who Jesus is. That's the role Peter plays in the other Gospels. But in John's Gospel, it's Philip. And then finally, Nathaniel. Um, you know that when Nathaniel first responds, when Philip comes to him and says, we found the Messiah, the one from, from Nazareth. Philip says this glib, I mean, Nathaniel says this glib comment of what good could come out of Nazareth? People think that this is probably two different villages that are jealous of one another. And it's kind of like we know that Philip is from Cana. And it's kind of like, you know, Cana is where it's at. Nazareth is nothing. It's kind of like their way of poking fun the way we do that as students from one school against another. At one point in time, my daughter and son went to two different schools, one to Montgomery, one to Santa Rosa, and that year was torture because they were constantly at each other because of their loyalties. But then when, when uh, Nathaniel does come and Jesus says what he says to him, you get this, this sense of, okay, if you know me to be that, that's something that means a lot to me. When someone talks about my character and they know and it rings true, then I feel something, I feel a strong connection to that person. That's exactly what happens with Nathaniel. And so he's willing to say, you must be the son of God, the king of Israel. So I ask you, when you consider these four, is it Andrew who brings others to Jesus and brings opportunities for Jesus to act because he brings it to Jesus' attention? Is it Peter whose eagerness and impulsiveness gets him out there so that he's willing to take risks and he's ready to follow and do whatever Jesus might ask of him? Or is it Philip who, though he's adventurous, is nevertheless practical and, and pragmatic, but he points people to Jesus and helps them to grow in their faith due to his own convictions? Or is it more like Nathaniel, whose response to Jesus is that I'm all in, despite the fact that he is the, he's only named in John and he's not mentioned as one of the twelve. How is it that this important figure is overlooked by all the other Christian writers and leaders? 
and yet he was someone who remained true and Jesus could use to, to make better clarification of who he was. Each of these disciples represents some response to Jesus. What is your response? Is it through one of these avenues or one of your own? Either way, John invites us to get close to Jesus, stay close to follow him and learn of him. May it be so.